All right, good morning. What are y'all doing back there? There's not even donuts. Come on now. All right, this morning we are starting a new series. It is a new year, so this is a time to start a new series. We're starting a new series called The Life of Paul. I have been on study leave all this past week. Study leave is the words that I use to mean like what I do the very last week of every year, which is I'll study some sort of book of the Bible or some topic or some passage of scripture in preparation for the next like 20 sermons or so. And so I am excited to have been studying and then share with you from The Life of Paul. Paul is an incredible Bible character, if you do not know. I would say, just in my opinion, he's probably in the top five as far as most significant Bible characters. If you were to rank them as far as human beings go, um, number one would be Jesus by far, and that's important to understand. By far, Jesus, because he is God in the flesh, come here. He is the one who the whole book is about. He is the one we worship. It's the reason we're called, we call ourselves Christians. So Jesus would be number one by far. But then if you were to ask, but who would be the next characters, two, three, four, and five. And I'll just give you my opinion. I don't know if it'd be in this order, but I think it would be Abraham, Moses, Peter, and Paul. And so if that's true, we're talking about a top five Bible character here. And most of his story is found in the book of Acts. And so for these next many weeks, um, we will be learning mostly, we'll be going verse by verse through the book of Acts. However, you might say, well, then why not just call this a series on the book of Acts? Well, because it's not. There's a big chunk of the book of Acts that's not about Paul, and we're not going to be covering those verses at this time. Um, Also, there are things that we do learn about Paul from outside of Acts, and we will be incorporating those things into this series. Um, I mean, that's my plan, um, because they're about Paul, and the series is about the life of Paul. So for instance, I don't know if you know this, but after, shortly after um, he becomes a Christian, he takes a trip, a three-year trip into Arabia. Did you know that? Paul went into Arabia for three years. Yeah, Luke does not talk about it in the book of Acts, but Paul mentions it when he writes a letter to the Galatians. So when we get to that part of the story, we should probably include that because it happened, and we know that it happened even though it was outside of the book of Acts. So that's the kind of thing that we'll be doing um, over the next uh, several weeks. So I wanted to start off by asking and answering a question that I think is important to do at the beginning of a series like this. And the question is, why would we learn about the life of Paul? I know that there are some of you here that you don't need the answer to that question, okay? You just go like, well, it's in the Bible. That's all I need to know, okay? And I come to this church, and I love your preaching, pastor. It's wonderful. I just, you don't need to tell me why. You just teach me the Bible. It's so great. And for those of you that have that attitude, I love you. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> but it's not all of us. Like, there are some of you that are here, and you're going, no, no, no. if you're going to preach something about something for 20 weeks, and you want me to listen... Like, you need to tell me why it's important, okay? And so I try to do that at the beginning of these series. So let me tell you this. First of all, the life of Paul is in the Bible for a reason. And in fact, it's in the Bible for two reasons, okay? And when I say that, I actually mean it's in the Bible for two categories of reasons. Everything that is in the Bible is in the Bible for two different types of reasons. Divine reasons and human reasons, Every single passage in the Bible is there, A, because God wanted us to know it, right? There were divine reasons for the passage, but B, because some human being thought people ought to know it, right? I don't think God overrode people's wills when they wrote. I think that the people who wrote passages of Scripture wrote what they wanted to write. Like they wrote down saying this happened and they wrote it in their own words because they wanted people to know. And so anytime we come across the passage, it's because God wanted us to know it and it's because some human being thought this is worth writing down. And so in this case, God wanted us to know about the life of Paul and Luke wanted somebody to know about the life of Paul. Luke wanted somebody named Theophilus to know about the life of Paul. 
and the way that I know that. In fact, the Theophilus should not be unfamiliar to you. Okay, do you guys, you guys heard of the name Theophilus? Yes, because we talked about it here at church two Sundays ago. When we learned the Christmas story, we talked about the book of Luke, and when we read the first four verses of the book of Luke, we found out that the book of Luke was written by Luke to a man named Theophilus. Luke thought it was so important for Theophilus to know the Jesus story that he sat down one day and hand-wrote the whole thing out for him. And then he did it again with a sequel. And if you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 1, you will see that. So let's just start with Acts 1.1, the book that tells us the most about Paul. Acts 1.1 starts off with these words. I, this is Luke talking, wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So you can see that Acts was written to the same guy, Theophilus, and he mentions a book that came before the book of Acts, right? The first narrative. What book is that? The Gospel of Luke. That, there should have been much more confidence <laughs> in that answer because we just, we just talked about that, okay? He wrote Luke about Jesus, so that's the first narrative, the one about Jesus. So he's saying to Theophilus, this is a sequel. This is the next thing that happened. This is the second narrative. Now, the book of Acts has 28 chapters in it, and in those 28 chapters, 17 of them are about the life of Paul. So if you're not good at doing math really fast, I'll, I'll just let you know I did it for you. 17 chapters out of 28 is about 60%. About 60% of the book of Acts is about the life of Paul. So for whatever reason, Luke thought about the importance of Theophilus learning about whatever happened in the next, the next generation after the time of Jesus on this earth. And when he thought about that, he thought a lot about the life of Paul. Now, why did he think a lot about the life of Paul? I don't know for sure. I could, I'll, just, I'll give you a theory. I don't know if this is true. I found it on the internet. Okay, but there are people who think that Theophilus was Paul's lawyer when he was uh, going to go to be in tr a trial in Rome. Like, uh, you may know this, when Nero was the emperor, he was very anti-Christian. There comes a point where Paul is imprisoned, and he's on trial, and they're trying to decide what to do with him. And there are some people that think Theophilus was the lawyer that was representing Paul at his trial. And if that was the case, then it, Luke would have been writing this as a brief for his lawyer. He would have been saying, like, this, we wanted to let you know what happened up to this point. Like, how did we get to where we are? Now, is that true? I have no clue, okay? It was on the internet. I don't know. But what I'm saying is that kind of thing could be true. Like, we don't know. We don't know exactly what was going on. So I'm just saying, for whatever reason, and we don't know the reason, but for whatever reason, Luke thought Theophilus needed to know what happened after the time period of Jesus, and he focused a lot on the life of Paul. Now, Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. So there's 27 books that make up our New Testament. 13 of them are written by Paul. That's a huge chunk. He wrote one-third of the New Testament. And we consider these words to be God's words, that God is instructing us through Paul's letters. So another reason to care about the life of Paul is to understand him, I think, is to help us better understand them. If we want to understand the words that God gave us through Paul, one-third of our New Testament, then it's going to be helpful for us to understand him and his life. I mean, I think you already know this because this is not just true about the Bible. Anytime you read a document... If you know the author or you know a lot about the author, it's easier to interpret it than if you get a document that's from you don't know the person who wrote it or you don't know the context or why they wrote it or what, any information about them. And so if we want to understand our New Testament, it would be good for us to understand the life of Paul. And in fact, those 13 letters that he wrote brings me like full circle back around to the first thing I said, which is not only are there human reasons, there are divine reasons that we have the book of Acts in our Bible and the story of Paul. And, and this is... This is my opinion, I don't have a verse for it, but I suspect, based on what happened after this, that one reason that God inspired Luke 
to write the book of Acts the way he did was so not only Acts would end up in the Bible, but so that the 13 letters of Paul would end up in the Bible. That those 13 letters, needed, we needed to recognize them as words from Jesus, and we needed Luke's account in Acts to realize, oh, this man Paul is not just someone that lived a long time ago, he was a spokesman for Jesus Christ. And so I think that's part of God's reasoning for why we even, even have Acts. We have it because we need to know the story. We also have it because that story affects other things that we believe. So with all of that said as introduction, let's go ahead and begin at the beginning. All right. So the man that we call Paul was born at some point, right? And when he was born, his name was Saul. As best as we can tell, his birth name was Saul. If they had birth certificates back then, his would have said Saul, okay, probably named after the king in the Old Testament named Saul. Um, they did not have birth certificates back then, by the way. But I think that that's what his name was, and that's probably the name that he went by throughout his childhood and even some of his adulthood. And then at some point in his adulthood, he started going by the name Paul. Okay? And this is not that unusual. There are lots of people, probably some in this room, who had a name that you went by as a kid, and then there was the name that you go by in your adulthood. So that's not uncommon. However, I will say there is a popular myth within Christianity that God renamed him from Saul to Paul. Maybe many of you have been taught this, that there was this day that God showed up and he said, you are Saul and you're bad, but today I rename you Paul and you will now be good. All right? There are a lot of people that believe that happened. It did not. That story is not in the Bible. Um, there is a time where Jesus appears to uh, Saul on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. We will get there eventually. That did happen. He did not get renamed there. I, I almost think people are maybe taking the Abraham story and like <laughs> smashing it in with the Paul story. But if you actually look at the story, Jesus appeared to Saul and called him Saul. And he continued to go by Saul for the rest of that day. He continued to go by Saul for the rest of that week, for the rest of that month, for the rest of that year. In fact, it looks like at least a decade he continued to go by Saul. He was a pastor of a church in Antioch. He was Pastor Saul. And then there comes a point where he starts going by Paul, or at least, uh, and, and Luke starts calling him that. And so when we get to that part of the story, we'll talk about why. But I'll just let you know it wasn't a God came down and changed his name because he became a Christian. That's not what happened. He was Saul for a long time. Then he was Paul. So how did his life begin? What was his life like before he was a Christian and back when he was little kid Saul and teenager Saul and young man Saul? And so for that, I want to start with two Bible verses that are toward the end of the story, but it's, the time, it's a time where Paul is speaking, talking back about the beginning of the story. So it's Acts chapter 22, verse 3, and Acts chapter 23, verse 6. They're on the same page in my Bible. They're not right next to each other, but they're on the same place where you open up. So Acts 22, verse 3, and Acts 23, verse 6. I'm just taking out these two pieces in this conversation that, that Saul was having, and this is what he says. He says, I am a Jewish man. He's talking to this big group of people. I am a Jewish man born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel and educated according to our strict view of our patri the strict view of our patriarchal law. So this is what he says about himself. I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up, which could mean educated, in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. This city, the city he was standing in at the time that he said that, was Jerusalem. So very likely that's what he's saying. I was educated here in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel. And then later on, next chapter, he's talking and he said, he cried out in the Sanhedrin, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. So I want to begin with that as far as thinking about what was he like as he was growing up, what culture did he grow up in, what kind of things did he believe, what was his childhood like? I think we can get it quite a bit from this. Saul was born in Tarsus. He says so. I am a Jewish man born in Tarsus of Cilicia. Tarsus would be in what we now call Turkey, okay? So it's not in Israel. He's a Jewish man born not in Israel. 
there were people who were Jewish who had left Israel and started living in other countries. Okay, and so that's what this is. He's a, he's a Jewish boy growing up in a Jewish family, but outside of Israel, way far away from Jerusalem, way up in Turkey, far, far north from there. Um, and the region was called Cilicia at the time, in Tarsus of Cilicia. But I was brought up in this city, so educated in this city, Jerusalem, at the uh, feet of Gamaliel. He was educated under a guy named Gamaliel. Who is that? Gamaliel was a well-respected rabbi, Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, which I will explain what that is in a little bit. And he is the one who would have trained um, Saul in understanding the Old Testament and the law and like Jewish theology and the things that they believe about God. He would have trained him up to be a Pharisee. In fact, that's one thing that Saul says here. He says, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. Though I'm calling him Saul because I think it at the most of the, what I'm going to talk about today, that's what name he was going by. So when he was a Pharisee, he was a Pharisee, Saul, right? He was, he was raised to be a Pharisee. If you don't know what a Pharisee is, I'm also going to explain that in a little bit. But for now, I'll just tell you it's a type of religious leader, okay? So a religious teacher. So he says he's this particular type of religious teacher, and he says, I'm the son of Pharisees, which is interesting. I never noticed that before this past week. Um, I don't know how literally to take him here, um, because we talked back in the Christmas series. Do you remember how we said son of is not always literal? Okay, good. Some of you were here. Some of you were listening. I love it. Um, Son of is not always literal. And so it could be that he is saying, my dad was a Pharisee. It could be that he's saying, my grandfather's a Pharisee. Sometimes son of means descendant of or where I came from. And so it could be that his father was a Pharisee. It could be that his grandfather was a Pharisee. It could be that he's saying, I come from a long line of Pharisees. It could be that he's just saying, culturally, this is my heritage. We're a Pharisee family. This is what I've always believed. I've always been on this team my whole life. But that's what he's saying here. So, Um, what's a Pharisee? A Pharisee was a Jewish religious group back in the first century during the time period of Jesus and before and after. And they were a group of people who took the Old Testament very seriously. They believed in the Old Testament as God's word, and they believed in obeying the Old Testament law. And they also took the tradition of Moses seriously. So they had the written Old Testament, and then they had the traditions of Moses. The traditions of Moses, sometimes called the oral tradition, would be these things that they believed that their people were supposed to do and behave and believe, but they weren't written in the Old Testament. It was from the time of Moses, and it was passed down from generation to generation. It was their tradition. And so by the time you get to the first century, you've got these written things that we go by, the Old Testament, these, these old laws that we go by, the Torah, but then you also have the traditions, the traditions of the elders, the traditions of Moses. These are all the things, they're not written down, but we know we're supposed to do them. We know we're supposed to take this many steps, and we're supposed to be this way on Sabbath, and we're supposed to handle this situation this way, and they took all that stuff very seriously. They took the rules very seriously, and it seems to me that some of the Pharisees, in the way that Jesus talks to them, and the way that Paul even talks about himself when he was a Pharisee, they believed that all of this rule-following made them righteous before God. That they are a group of people that believed that if we can follow the rules just right, we'll be righteous people. Now, Saul does not continue to believe that. There comes a point later on in the story where he believes that his righteousness actually comes from Jesus to him as a gift. But I think there's a point before that that he believes that if we can just be good enough, if we can just obey all the rules and take it seriously enough, God will be like, look at them, and they get rewards, and look at these people, they're not good. They really thought that it made them... Uh, righteous. Also, the Pharisees, I think, were a little bit of a political party. I mean, they're not literally a political party. They were a a religious group, but the separation of church and state was not quite like it is in America back in ancient Israel, okay? So there was so much more connection between what they believed religiously and the way that their culture worked and what people thought was right and wrong and what was done among the people. And so you have this 
um, group of people called the Sanhedrin. I told you I would tell you who they are. The Sanhedrin is, they are a religious body that had authority. It was 70 men who would be a jury in cases where they had to decide who was right and wrong about religious things or even who gets, you know, like what do we, who gets punished and who doesn't when it comes to what people are doing wrong as far as obeying a Hebrew law in Israel. So there was these, the, I, uh, the, I guess the closest equivalent I can think of in our day and age would be Congress, okay? Although our Congress is not religious in nature, and theirs was. But they have the Sanhedrin, which is sort of this religious Congress, and they're in, they're in authority. And there were Pharisees who were part of the Sanhedrin. They were kind of one of the political parties in the Sanhedrin. They were the minority party, I believe. Um, but they, were, they were, had a lot of influence within how things were, were handled and what people believed and what people did in Israel at the time. So that's who the Pharisees were. And so we have this guy who's saying, hey, I lived outside of Israel at some point, or at least was born outside of Israel. I was educated here by this Pharisee. That's what I am. This is my heritage. So he grew up in that kind of culture, right? He grew up believing in the traditions and the laws and in making himself as righteous as he possibly could be with his behavior. Now it says that Tarsus was his birthplace, and I guess that all by itself does not mean that he lived in Tarsus, because just because you're born somewhere, that doesn't mean that you spent any significant amount of time there, right? Like, I was born in Hollywood, Florida. I've never lived in Hollywood, Florida. That's just the hospital that I was born in. And so, um, it, just because he was born in Tarsus doesn't mean that he's from Tarsus. However, I think he was from Tarsus, because in Acts chapter 11, verse 25, we see Saul as an adult living in Tarsus. So he lived wherever he lived, but at some point, as an adult, he was living in Tarsus. Well, why? If you live somewhere else, like Jerusalem, why would you go back to Tarsus? Here's my thinking, because it was his hometown, because that's where his mom and dad are from, because that's where his relatives all live, because that's where he spent his time as a child. And so he went back to the town that he was from at some point, I think. I think the Tarsus is his hometown. So here's my speculation in trying to put all this together. Tarsus is his hometown. That's where his family's from. That's the town he's familiar with. That's where he was when he was a little kid. And then, at some point, he was brought up or educated in the city of Jerusalem, okay? Because that's where Gamaliel is in this story. And so, I'm thinking, Jerusalem is perhaps his later childhood town because he's trained to be a Pharisee there in Jerusalem. And if you're trained to be a Pharisee, you probably are not trained to be a Pharisee when you're two years old or six years old. Right? It would probably be when you're older. So I don't know where he lived when he was six years old. Maybe Tarsus, maybe he'd moved to Jerusalem by then, but I'm thinking by the time he's a teenager, 13, 14, 15 years old, he is, he is growing up with Gamaliel, learning how to be a Pharisee, how to be a rabbi, how to teach the Old Testament. So I, 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 maybe Jerusalem is like his college town, right? It's, so his, Tarsus is his hometown. You know how some of you send your kid off to college somewhere? And it could be that they sent him off to Jerusalem for, you know, for rabbi training. And so in that case, he grew up part of his childhood in, um, in Jerusalem and stayed there until, I don't know, maybe throughout his teenage years, maybe all the way into his 20s. I don't think he stayed all the way into his 30s, though, because as the story goes on, it's, it, there does not seem to be any overlap between Paul and the events of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Good job, whoever shut that off. Um, okay, there does not seem to be any overlap. In other words, um, Paul does not seem to have been around for the Jesus story. Jesus made quite a splash in Israel during his day and age, and there was a lot of stuff that went on there. And, and you, if you've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know a lot of times Jesus sparred with the Pharisees and talked with them about things. There does not seem to be any evidence that Saul was one of those Pharisees arguing with Jesus. Eventually, Jesus goes to Jerusalem, which is the city 
that um, Saul says that he was brought up in, and there does not seem to be any contact between Saul and Jerusalem and Jesus. Jesus came in riding on a donkey. People were worshiping him. The Pharisees did not like that, right? No evidence that Saul was one of those Pharisees. He was brought before the Sanhedrin, um, Jesus was, and right, convicted uh, so that they would kill him on the cross. There does not seem to be any evidence that Saul was there that night when it happened. Jesus died on the cross. There does not, I mean, every time you see Luke or Paul point back about significant things that happened earlier in their life, there's no mention of this. It's not as if, like, Saul wasn't there when Jesus died on the cross. When Jesus rose again, there's no evidence that Saul was, like, an eyewitness of that. Um, it seems, if you just read the story, the first time that Saul comes into contact with Jesus is in Acts chapter 9 on the Damascus road. Jesus, after having resurrected, appears to Saul and speaks to him, and that seems to be the first time Saul has any contact with Jesus. So what I'm thinking is, if all this is true, Saul, born in Tarsus, stayed there for however long, then went to Jerusalem, was educated there for however long, and then probably went back to Tarsus, Turkey, far away from Israel, and missed out on the whole ministry of Jesus. All the stuff that was happening in Israel and all the stuff that Jesus did specifically in Jerusalem, dying on the cross, rising again, that he was out of the country for all of that. And if that is all correct, and it may not be, but if that is all correct, then that would mean that at some point Saul returned to Jerusalem, a city that he had been familiar with because he had been educated there, and found that his college town had changed. That he was there learning Jewish stuff, and okay, this is what we believe, and then I'm thinking probably he went away and then came back, and in the meantime, Jesus had done all of his ministry and died and rose again, and all these people started believing in Jesus, and Christianity was born, and so he lived in that town, and he understood the culture, and when he came back, he went, whoa, whoa, what is going on to my city? A new superstition has sprouted up. Well, last time I was here... We were all like believing the right things. I mean, the Sadducees weren't believing the right things, but you know, we were arguing with them and doing our job. Like things, but the things were predictable. We understood how things were. And then I left, and now I come back, and there's like this whole other group of people, thousands of them, with this weirdo superstition about the Messiah having come and Jesus, and they worship him. And it wasn't even called Christianity at this point. Okay, so I'm sure it didn't seem legit. Okay, like, like they didn't like that name hadn't even been invented at this point. They, it was called the Way. Did you know that? That early on, these people that believed in Jesus just said they were following the way. So he shows up, and, and like years earlier, last time he was there, nobody followed the way. And then this time he comes back, and tons of people follow the way. What in the world is that? And I'm sure he asked people. He may have had friends and relatives and acquaintances when, from when he lived there the first time. What is this thing called the way? Oh, well, we believe that the Messiah showed up, Jesus. <laughs> the Messiah showed up? Yeah, he came, and I mean, he's gone now, but he came but just imagine how this must have sounded to Saul. The Messiah came while I was gone? I was only gone for a few years. Yeah, he came and left. Okay. What did he do? Well, he like preached and then he died. Oh, he died. Well, I mean, I'm kind of familiar with the Old Testament. That's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. He's not supposed to die. He's the one that's supposed to rescue us. He's the one that's supposed to rescue us from our enemies, not die. Well, well that, he did rescue us from it. See, he died, but he didn't stay dead. He came back to life. Oh, he came back to life. So then I can meet him. Well, no, he's gone. He left after he came back to life. Well, that's convenient. So I can't talk with him about this. No, but he was here. So you're telling me the Messiah of the Old Testament, who is going to rescue us from all oppression, while I was gone for a few years, came and left. 
And Rome is still oppressing us. Well, yeah, when you say it like that, it doesn't sound so good, but <laughs> he's, he's rescuing us from our sins, which is the bigger problem, and he will rescue us from all of our enemies in the long term. He's coming back. Oh, yeah, that's convenient, too. You've been duped, right? That had to be what he was thinking. You've been duped. A bunch of you just started believing craziness. Why did I leave this town? I should have stuck around. You believe the Messiah came and left and Rome is in charge. You all, you all been tricked. And here's the thing. This belief, the way, was spreading like wildfire at this point. Thousands of people were believing it and thousands of people believing it in a short period of time. Meaning there was just a few people believing it and then a few months later, thousands of people believing it. And you might say, what's the big deal about that? I just, I want you to imagine it from his perspective. So I want you to just imagine if it happened in Ocala. What if in Ocala you were... Like, what if you were here, and you grew up here, and you understand the culture and kind of what people believe religiously? Imagine you went away for a little while and came back, and what you found out was this new belief sprouted up. And, and this, this is the thing I want you, want you to picture. I want you to imagine, at first, it's just a few people. There's a few families believing this thing that you think is crazy. Imagine here in Ocala, there's a few families, and they, they are, uh, let's just make up a thing, they're pinecone worshipers. They just, they become worshipers of pine cones and they collect the pine cones and they worship them. And you hear about a few families doing this and you're like, that's crazy. You know, that's not what I believe. I believe the Bible, right? So I don't think you should worship created things. I think you should re re worship the creator, right? So that's, that's terrible. But then somebody says, well, what are you going to do about it? Well, nothing. I'm not going to do anything about it. There's just a few families. Like everyone, everyone's going to know they're crazy. You know, that'll die out eventually. So I'm not going to do anything about it. And now imagine if pine cone worship... It's just involving a few families, let's say in October. By December, there's thousands of people, thousands of pinecone worshipers. There's a new megachurch in town, new pinecone megachurch, bigger than Church of the Springs of Meadowbrook, that popped up, didn't exist in October, suddenly is there in December. Now imagine you're living there. Wouldn't you at some point, if you're in that city, you're going, what is going on here? How, how, nobody believed this last year. Now it's all the rage. These people are believing Jesus is the Messiah. What is going on? I think that Saul had to have come back and said, what happened to my city and my friends and my relatives and everybody around here? And so whatever the details were, I think Saul did not like this new group of people. And he was not the only one. And so now we're going to pick up the story in Acts chapter 6. That's your background. Now Acts chapter 6. Of the followers of the way, some of the people were particularly influential or particularly significant. And one of those people's name was Stephen. There were 12 apostles, and then there was this other group that was underneath them called the Seven. And Stephen was one of the Seven. So Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. That's another important thing. After Jesus died on the cross, he rose again, and he told them that he was going to send the Holy Spirit to them. Then Jesus went to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit down, and there were miraculous things going on, which is why this new superstition probably got such a kickstart, because there were miraculous things. The Holy Spirit was empowering these people, and people were believing it. So Stephen was full of grace and power and performing great wonders and signs among the people. He was one of those people performing these miracles, and many people were believing him, but not everybody. Look at this. Then some from what is called the Freedmen's Synagogue, this is a group of Jewish guys, right? The Freedmen Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia, it's going to matter, and Asia, came forward and disputed with him. Okay? Let's just keep the screen up for a second. I'm not ready for that yet. Go back. So, we've got these Jewish people that are there, and they're talking to um, Stephen, and they're arguing with him. And 
it could be that Saul is one of these people because some of them are from Cilicia. We don't know for sure. But whoever these are, these are people who don't agree with what Stephen is saying. Okay? And so they are disputing with him. So let's go. They came forward and disputed with, next slide, Stephen. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Because Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit and because he had wisdom, as these people started arguing with him and going, Jesus couldn't be the Messiah and I got a verse for that and blah, blah, blah. And as they were arguing with him, they couldn't win. Stephen had an answer for everything. And it made them so angry at him. So they decided, well, if we can't win this debate, we're just going to get rid of him. So we'll make some false accusations to the people who are in charge. So verse 11, then they persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. It's not true, but that's what they said. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. So they came and dragged him off. That's Stephen, dragged him off and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, This man does not stop speaking blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that Jesus, this Nazarene, will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. So they're throwing out these accusations. And then the high priest, who I think is the highest ranking member of the Sanhedrin, says this. This is Acts 7 verse 1. Is this true? So they've, they've thrown out their accusations. And the high priest says to Stephen, you've heard what they've said. Is this true? Stephen responds with this, verse 2, brothers and fathers, he said, listen, the glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. And just so you know, the answer that, that Stephen gives is a really long one. It's called Stephen's sermon, and he talks for like this whole chapter. I am not going to read the whole sermon to you. But he talks for a long time, and he talks um, kind of giving a summary of the entire Old Testament, and he focuses at certain parts about how they rejected Moses, and he focuses on parts about how they disobeyed and rebelled against God as he tells the story. And then I'm just going to skip to the end here, verse 44. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses commanded him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors in turn received it and with Joshua brought it in when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers until the days of David. He found favor in God's sight and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built him a house. You can see, right, he's summarizing the Old Testament here. We've got Moses, we've got Joshua, we've got David, we've got Solomon. And then he gets to the part with the temple and he says, verse 48, however, the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. As the prophet says, and this is a big deal, he's talking to these Jewish people and he's saying the temple's not quite as big of a deal as you think it is. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? And then Stephen says this next part, and it's probably the part that got him killed. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Don't know for sure, but I think Saul may have been one of those people standing there that day going, who are you calling stiff-necked? And then he says that, they, that you have uncircumcised hearts and ears, and that may not sound like a big put-down to you in, this, in the year 2022. But uncircumcised is the word they use to talk about the Gentiles, right? This is, this is a us-them thing. This is, these are the bad people. These are the people that we think they're, they're, they're dirty. They're not part of God's covenant people. We don't even like being around them, right? And you are like them. You are in the inside of you, your heart, the way that you listen, you're lost like them. And you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. 
as your ancestors did. That's probably why he told the whole Old Testament story, because he's connecting this. This is what, you, this is what our great-great-great-great-grandparents did, right? As your ancestors did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You are like your, your grandparents. You are like your ancestors in that they were people who persecuted the prophets who said the righteous one was coming. Oh, and by the way, the righteous one did come and you all murdered him. And they got so angry about that. Verse 54. When they heard these things, they were enraged in their hearts and they gnashed their teeth at him. I suspect Saul was one of the people gnashing his teeth at this point. You might say, why? Why do you think he's in this story? Oh, you'll see. I'm getting to it. They were gnashing their teeth at him. Verse 57. Then they screamed at the top of their voices and they covered their ears. This is the, we don't want to hear you anymore. They screamed at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. They threw him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's Saul's first appearance in the Bible. The people of the way are flourishing in Jerusalem. One of their influential figures says, you all killed Jesus, but we're going to keep worshiping him. And they got so angry, they decided to kill him. And Saul was the one that said, I will hold your coats while you kill him. You go get him, boys. He was there. Verse 59, they were stoning Stephen as he called out. This is Stephen called out. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Is that not incredible? Stephen was praying that God would forgive his murderers as they were murdering him. And saying this, he fell asleep. That's a euphemism for died. And then the next verse, I think is, is Luke's way of letting us know Saul wasn't just there like holding the jackets because he had to. Look at the next verse, chapter 8, verse 1. Saul agreed with putting him to death. Just wanted to be clear. The, I'll hold your jackets, you go get them, boys. Like, that's what it really means. It wasn't just, oh, I'm the guy that drew the short straw and I got to hold the jackets while them do it. No, this, I think this is him saying, I am supportive of this murder. And on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. Something about Stephen's death inspired Paul, maybe inspired is not the right word, but caused Paul to be like fully on in with persecuting the Christians. Something about Stephen dying caused this persecution to break out, and Saul really kicked it into high gear. He was ravaging the church, and he would enter house after house. He'd go into people's house, just bust in there, and drag out men and women and throw them in prison. And you see later on in the story that he was happy for these people who were thrown in prison to be killed or to be beaten. This man was a wicked man. He was ignorant of the truth. He did not believe in Jesus, and he was misguided. 
seriously misguided, misguided to the point that he was attacking innocent people, people who were just worshiping Jesus. Okay? They weren't hurting anybody. They were worshiping Jesus because they believed he really was the Messiah. And he's dragging them out of our house and throwing them in prison and cheering when they die and happy when they get beat up. He was misguided to the point of attacking innocent people. And he did it over and over again. And so I wanted to end with this thought. And if you were here this morning and you think to yourself, I am too bad of a person for God to love me. I want you to know stories like this are why thoughts like that are ridiculous. That God made a difference in Saul's life. God saved him. God forgave him. He wrote a third of the New Testament. And he was a wicked man. And there may be people in here who go, I I just, I mean, I understand Christians and they have this relationship with God, but I just think I'm too bad of a person for God to ever love me and accept me. If you know the story, you, that, that's crazy talk, and you need to know that. And there may be some of you that believe that about yourself, and there may be some of you that don't. There may be some of you on the other extreme. I know that we live in a culture where people go, well, no, I'm not a bad person. You know, of course God loves me. God loves everybody because I'm good. Everybody's good, right? That's a, that's a common thing in our culture, too. I'm a good person. Everybody's a good person. But I bet there are some people in this room that you're smart enough to know that, like, that can't be true all the time about everybody. Like, if I'm a good person everybody's a good person? Really? Every, we're all good all the time? Why is the world the way it is then? And I think there are some of you that are smart enough to go, I'm, I'm not a good person. Some of you, because you know yourself better than you know other people, you're quite ashamed of things you've done. And you go, I, I'm a terrible person. There are some of you in this room that you've done things wrong, and not even, not even Bible things wrong. Maybe you don't even know whether the Bible says it's wrong or not. You've done things wrong in the sense that You just know it's wrong. When other people do it to you, you say, that's wrong. And you do it. Some of you have done that and then decided, I don't want to do that anymore. I think that's wrong. And then you've continued to do it. Even though you've decided, I'm going to stop. You kept doing it. And at some point, you had to think to yourself, I'm a bad person. I've identified things I think are wrong, and I keep doing them. What's wrong with me? And there could come a point where you go, I think whatever's wrong with me is so bad that there's no way that God could ever love me. I have talked with people like this. I can remember having a conversation, this was years ago, with a man who, he's the brother of a woman who goes to church here. And I was talking to him on the phone. And I, at some point, we were, I was talking about how he needed to become a Christian and believe in Jesus. And he said to me something along the lines of like, I'm too bad for that. That's not going to work out for me. I've messed up too much. And there was a point in the conversation where he said, Um, He said, I don't think I could even forgive myself for all the things I've done wrong. And I said to him, like, you don't have to forgive yourself. Like, you're not primarily the one you sinned against. God will forgive you. And I shared the gospel with him, and he became a Christian that night. And then there's another guy who I talked to a few years ago, and I remember having a conversation with him that was similar. I remember it was at his house. And he, he was sharing with me what was going on in his life, and it was a point in his life where the consequences of his sin had, um, you know, you, like, you reap the consequences of your sin. You've done something wrong, and then eventually it all comes crashing down on you. And your life is terrible, at least for a while, because of what you've done. And that had happened, and so the, 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 the shame was fresh. And he looked at me, and he said, Mario, I feel like I am a crappy person. And he did not use the word crappy. He used a word I'm not going to say on Sunday morning. But he looked at me and he said, I feel like I'm a crappy person. And I think in that moment, there's a temptation for us to to say, oh, no, 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 you're not. You're good. You're good. 
But sometimes God allows us to see our sinfulness so that we'll turn to him. And so he said, he said, I feel like I'm a crappy person. I looked at him and I said, well, that's because you are. And I, and I am too. And that's what's so great about the gospel. Jesus will forgive us anyway. And that guy became a Christian that month. And so I just wanted to reject this. I'm too bad of a person for God to love me. That, that, that literally doesn't happen. And there may be some of you here, and this is a slight variation, but I want to address this too. There may be some of you that you wouldn't say I'm too bad of a person for God to love me because you might say God somehow loves everybody. I'm sure he loves me too. But I'm too bad of a person for God to use me. There may be some of you here that say I'm too bad of a person for God to, to use me. God uses special people, but not people messed up like me. Saul was seriously messed up. God used him to write a third of the New Testament. He was one of the greatest missionaries who ever lived. This story just makes stuff like that sound ridiculous. So I just wanted to end with these words from Saul himself. This is 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 12. And this is a letter that Saul wrote more than 20 years later. Like the, the, the day that he was there holding the coats. The, the days that he was there dragging men and women and putting them in prison, this would have been at least 20 years later, probably 25, 30 years later, he writes these words. I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me just pause right there. He had changed his mind, had he not? He was attacking people who believed Jesus Christ as Lord. And here I, we have a letter that he wrote about 25 years later-ish. And he says, I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry, one who was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he adds this, And I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. And so if you are here this morning and you are someone who has been acting out of ignorance and unbelief, you don't believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but you are someone who would believe in him for eternal life, then you should do so. You should repent of your sins and you should trust in Jesus. Will he accept you? Oh, yes. How do I know? Because he has extraordinary patience. And you don't have to take my word for it. You can take Paul's word for it. Let's pray. I ask God right now that you would cause there to be people in this room whose hearts change even today. that they would look at their shame and they would go, okay, I guess it's good that I have that. Because it helps me see the extraordinary patience of Jesus, whom I accept now. 
So I pray that today would be a day of repentance and turning to you. I pray for those of us who are in this room that already know you. I'm sure hearing this is probably good for us, for us not to be able to look at people and go, well, that person messed up. They never can serve God again. Or looking at our own lives and going, I don't know. Does God really forgive me? So I just pray that you would use this incredible story of what you did in Saul's life. I pray that you'd use it in our life all these years later. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.